I know this, this life gets hard, God. We're surrounded by so much pain and agony. And we see it in our own hearts and in our own lives. And Lord, we're just longing for you. And Jesus, we long for that day where you part the sky. And our eyes will set themselves upon your face. Jesus, I pray that you would just even purify us through that hope, as 1 John tells us. That the hope of your return would cause us, God, to to want to live and conform to your likeness. May we submit to you, God. May we submit to your plans. and, And God, let us align our lives with your will. Thank you for hearing us. Thank you for being pleased in our worship. We pray, God, you continue to speak to us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Can we give God a hand clap wherever you are at? He is so good to us. Yeah, amen. Amen. You may be seated, church. Wow, good morning, you all. How you doing? Come on, come on. How y'all doing today? Man, glad to be here with you all on week two of our in-person opening and regathering. Uh, man, it's been, a, it's been a wild year, as you guys all know, and I feel like every week is, is different from the one before, and it's, just, it's, hard, to, it's hard to get our, our, our minds and our eyes wrapped around it. You know, about a year and a half ago, Erica and I were, were we had the opportunity to go to Israel, and while there, we went to what's called Solomon's Tunnels. And while in these tunnels, we were told in advance, like, hey, it gets a little tight. And so, like, cool, we walk down the stairs, and it's, it's wide. But as we continue to walk through the tunnels, sure enough, it got tight. I mean, like, tight. As we're walking through to the point where my shoulders are brushing against the walls, and our book bags were, were, were too big for us to come this way, and you're just kind of, like, walking through the tunnel. And... Um, some of you guys are claustrophobic, and even me explaining that is giving, doing a number on you, right? Um, we feel that 2020 has been that, many of us feel that way, where, where it started out like, oh, the year's good, and some things are happening, and slowly it feels like the walls are closing in on us, to the point where actually sometimes it feels almost literally hard to breathe, or just sometimes emotionally hard to breathe. And you're looking around and saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to make sense of what's going on in my life right now. I don't know how to make sense of what this world has been. And surely I don't really know what to do. And and these kinds of questions are are questions that, that we ask and humanity has asked at all different times since the beginning of time. What I want us to understand this morning is that there is a God who makes sense of life when life makes no sense. There is a God who brings clarity and perspective when we set our eyes upon him. Well, last week we jumped into the book of Daniel to look at what we're titling as what it's like to have faith in the fire. When the walls close in, you feel like your faith is in the fire. When the walls close in, you feel like your life is in the fire. You just feel the pressures and stress of life. Today we're going to take a look at Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to see that the king that Daniel served under by the name of Nebuchadnezzar felt like the walls in his life were closing in. And he couldn't make sense of it. And in fact, for him, the inability to make sense of what was going on created so much stress that he became very desperate. 
he became very, very despairing. And as we look at this text, we're going to find ourselves relating in many ways to what he felt. And the solution to his life is the solution to our life, and that's that there is a God who makes sense of our lives. Would you turn your Bible with me to Daniel chapter 2? If you've got an app, pull that up. Daniel chapter 2. I'll be reading and preaching from the English Standard Version of the Bible. You know, as, as I was planning to preach from Daniel, it's crazy. How I feel like every, every time, you know, I, I, I read through the book, I prepared the series before we started. And as I was preparing the series of, you know, about a month ago, I said, like, man, this is such a good fit. This is exactly what our, our church needs to hear, what our nation needs to hear. But, you know, I remember I thought the same way when we were in Romans and in the series before that. And, and God just reminded me, like, yeah, that, that's kind of how his word is. Wherever you park yourself is a good fit for where you're at today. Amen to that. So can you stand with me as I read from Daniel chapter 2? We're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar's life ripe with confusion. And tell me if you ever felt the way he explains himself feeling here. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream And my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, You shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Yo, that's that's pretty severe. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from the gift from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time. You're stalling, he's like, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall, and I shall know that you can show me also its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king has asked is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Can you say not with flesh? Because of this, The king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. This is God's word. You may be seated, church family. 
King Nebuchadnezzar's world was closing in on him. He wasn't going through a pandemic. He wasn't furloughed. He didn't have the emotional stress of lacking uh, physical friendship and, and the, the, the pressures of social distancing. But the way, the way and the reason his world was closing in on him was because he had a dream. He had a dream that left him perplexed because he knew that in the dream there was symbolism, there was a message, but he couldn't understand it. He's overwhelmed by the fact that he believes that a message is being relayed to him, but he doesn't know what it means. But he's also stressed out by the fact, like wondering, can I trust the people who are supposed to interpret my dream? And so he devises this plan in his life. He says, I'm going to call these wise people and tell them, I need to know my dreams and interpretation. But in order to really be confident that you're telling me the truth, I need you to also tell me the dream that I had. So I need to know both the dream and the interpretation from you. And so the people are kind of like, look, this is an out-of-control request. He calls together the full gamut of people. It says he gets the, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. Like he's leaving no stone unturned. These people were known to be those who had religious connections with the gods of Babylon. The gods of Babylon were, were known to be the gods of the, of the, of the skies. In fact, their, their chief god was named Marduk. And he was known to be the god of heaven, the lord of the heavens. But they had another god called Shamish, which is the sun god. They worshipped the moon, whom they called Sin, and they worshipped the stars, whom they called Ishtar. And the gods of the Babylonians were in the skies, and so they had these people called the Chaldeans, who were much like as astrologers. They, had their, they, they, re they read the signs in the sky, so to speak. And this is where many of their zodiac sign kind of ideas come from, this pagan idolatrous worship. And so they would look in the stars and try to get messages from their gods and relay those messages to the people on earth. There were wise people who also did understand the days they lived in so they can give some insightful thoughts based on what they perceived to be from the stars. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar calls all of them to help him out. And he says, I need you to tell me what's going on. Now, the problem is, like I said, he wants to know the dream as well. So not only in the stars do they need to find some sort of interpretation, but they need to figure out the actual dream that he had. And you and I know that's an impossible task. And in fact, they tell the king, look, we, we can't do this, but hey, tell us the dream, we'll get you the interpretation. And he's like, you're stalling. And in fact, if you don't do this, I'm going to tear you limb from limb and tear down your houses. And just so that we don't think that this is an empty threat, This is King Nebuchadnezzar we're talking about. The, the most mighty man in this part of the world, potentially in the whole world. Uh, let me tell you about King Nebuchadnezzar. When he took over Judah, where the people of Israel were from, he captured their king named Zedekiah. They brought him back to Babylon. You know what he did to him? He slaughtered his sons before his own eyes. And then he gouged out Zedekiah's eyes, so that was the last sight he ever saw. This same Nebuchadnezzar, it said in, in the book of Jeremiah, roasted some rebellious people in a fire. Nebuchadnezzar likes fires because in the next chapter, he's going to throw three other people in a fire. Nebuchadnezzar is a ruthless man. 
He's an evil man. And here he's a desperate man. And that's a dangerous combination. He tells them, if you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, this will be your fate. And the people there are so stressed out. They're like, look, oh, king, trying to be respectful. You hear their panic there in verse 10. They said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing. Like, king, you're the top dog of them all. But nobody's ever asked what you've asked for. And then they make this extremely insightful observation in verse 11. The thing you ask is too difficult. And then notice that. No one can show it to the king except the gods. The only one who can make this known are the gods. And they're saying, but look, they don't make their dwelling among us on this earth. The gods don't live among us, so they can't give you this interpretation. We're not the gods. We're flesh and bones. So how can you ask this of us? They feel this burden, and wrapped up in there, as we see in verse 13, is Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. These four faithful men were caught up in this. Now, they were to be executed just like the rest of the people. And it's at this moment, it says in verse 14, Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, that's the closest thing in the Bible with my name, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So Arioch is basically there. He's the executioner with the command to kill the wise men. Daniel's like, hey, what's going on? He explains it to him, to Daniel. And notice what Daniel says. This is where we're going to see what our God is like. In verse 15, he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so urgent? He made it known to him. In verse 16, Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Notice what Daniel does there. Daniel basically says, tell the king that I want an appointment with him tomorrow so I can tell him the interpretation to the dream. That's pretty dope, right? Small problem. Daniel doesn't know it. Daniel didn't even know what the situation was like until he asked him. Daniel knows something here that you and I must understand. He knows that God put him in his place for a reason. And he understood one thing. If God doesn't give me the interpretation, I'm a dead man. But if I don't ask for this opportunity, I'm a dead man. But if God has me here for a reason, he's going to use me for his glory. Daniel's just like, I'm just putting two two together. There's nothing in my life that's an accident. I didn't live where I live on accident. I didn't get captured and survived on accident. I didn't thrive for those three years on a vegetarian diet by accident. God placed me here for a reason, and maybe this is it. So Daniel's like, give me an appointment tomorrow. He's probably like, 3 p.m., I'm there. And what does Daniel do? He goes home, and he's like, oh, Lord, you got to tell me what's going on here. Look in there in verse 17. Daniel went to his house. He made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and he told them, notice, he told them, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel's like, we've got to pray. We've got probably 12 hours to live here if God doesn't answer us. 
But what we see is Daniel's utter trust in God and his belief in prayer. And prayer is powerful. Why? Because the God to whom we pray is powerful. And so Daniel calls upon his three friends, and he's like, y'all need to stand in the gap here. We're going to do this together. Church family, prayer, yes, it's an individual endeavor, but it's also a communal event. we got to call each other to pray. Intercessory prayer is standing in the gap for another person. Daniel's like, you're going to stand in the gap for me? I'm going to stand in the gap for you. Together, the four of us, we're going to bombard heaven and say, God, show us. And this is what they do. They They pray and they pray. And we're not told much else about how they prayed. Some manuscripts add that they prayed and fasted, perhaps, but there really wasn't much time even to fast. What, skip a meal? I mean, these guys were on the clock. They were under the gun. But they prayed. That's all we know. But they also knew some things about their God. Who does Daniel say for them to pray to? He says, pray to the God of heaven. They knew who their God was. I want to say something right quick about this. Remember, Daniel and these three other companions were youth. They were youth. And I know we've got some youth in our room right here. There is something beautiful, and for those of us who are old and boring, right, we've got to learn to continue to empower our youth Because they possess a kind of faith that's not scarred by life in ways that our faith has become scarred. We are much quicker to doubt as adults, where youth are much quicker to trust in God. And so we've got to say, pray. Call them to pray. I remember in high school, classmates of mine who were on fire for Jesus, who chose to pray at school. And their bold faith and their bold prayers ignited something in Erica and myself. And what did we start to do? But pray as well. Here these four youth are leading the charge through prayer. I find another thing pretty fascinating. Here in the text, Daniel refers to his three friends by their Jewish name. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Later on, he'll, he'll call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But here he refers to them by their Jewish names. And we saw it last week. You could change their names, but you can't change their faith. And here, this was a moment of their faith at its best, where they came to their God. What we see here in verse 19, this is what God does. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in, vision, in a vision of the night. That's all we're told. I'm like, can you give us more here, right? I want to know how they prayed. I want to hear how you told them. But we're not told. All we're told is Daniel knows the answer now. And Daniel erupts in praise in verses 20 to 23. Let me read those verses. Daniel said, blessed be the name of the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, Daniel says, for you have given me wisdom and might, and now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. In this prayer, Daniel quotes at least four different verses from the Old Testament. Again, 
We're given bits and pieces of Daniel's faith. But what we must understand is when we hide the scriptures in our hearts through memorization and meditation, they are what one pastor calls fighter verses. Fighter verses are used to fight against temptation, and fighter verses are used in, in praise when it erupts in our hearts. And here Daniel erupts in praise because, like, God, you answered our prayer. And through this time, we're going to learn five things. I'm going to be real quick. Five things about Daniel's God. Five aspects as this passage unfolds. we already seen one of them. What does Daniel refer to as God in verse 18? He says, seek mercy from who? The God of heaven. That's a fascinating way to call Yahweh. In fact, that's one of David's, David, uh, Daniel's favorite ways to refer to God, the God of heaven. Why? Well, as a man living in Babylon under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, who believed in Marduk, the Lord of heaven, who believed in the sun god, the moon god, and the star god, Daniel's like, look, my God is the God of heaven. He's above Marduk. He's above the sun. He's above the moon. He's above the stars. That's who my God is. Daniel's basically like, you might bow down to the sun, but the sun bows down to my God. You might bow down to the moon, but the moon worships my God because the scriptures says that all of creation declares my God's glory. So what you worship actually worships my God. And Daniel's like, we're going to call on the God of heaven. So first off, we learned this about our God, that our God, this God is the God of heaven. And when we serve the God of heaven, we also serve a God who is accessible he is a God whom we could pray to, and he's a God who responds to our prayers. He is not the God of the deists, who founded, many of whom founded America, who perceived God to be like a watchmaker who sets the world in order and leaves it alone. God's a double dipper. God set the world in order and keeps coming back and back and back. He works in this world. Daniel knew that this God of heaven is transcendent, but this God of heaven is also near. He's among us. He is imminent. That's the God that I serve. That's not like Nebuchadnezzar's God, but that's like our God. The second thing we learn about Daniel's God is there in verse 23. He says, to you, O God of who? My father's. Secondly, Daniel's God doesn't change. He doesn't shift. He's not moody. He's not, he's not one who has a good day and a bad day. But our God doesn't change, and Daniel realizes that because the God that Daniel worships is also the God that his fathers worshipped. Daniel knew that his God is the God who brought Abraham and Sarah to the land of Israel. He understood that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was also the, uh, their God is the God that he worshipped. He understood that it was his God who got them out of Egypt. It was his God who parted the Red Sea. It was his God who slayed giants. It was his God who defeated armies. And Daniel's like, the God then is the God I worship now because my God doesn't change. And he gives God praise. And when we pray to this God, we can rest in this God because we can trust in this God. Daniel's God hears us. Our God also does not change but the third thing we see is that our God is unmatched. There's no God like him. You see, what happens is the next day, Daniel, our text tells us, goes to Arioch and is like, hey, did you get that appointment? Because my God told me the answer. Arioch goes to King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we don't have time to look at this. Basically says, hey, I found someone who's got an answer. He's trying to get himself a nice little promotion here. 
being pretty self-advancing, Daniel shows up to King Nebuchadnezzar, and look what Nebuchadnezzar asks him in verse 26. The The king declared to Daniel, whose Babylonian name was Belteshazzar, he says, are you able to make known to me both the dream and the interpretation? And look what Daniel says. No, I'm not able to do that. And I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar's like, then why are you standing here right now, right? He says, no wise man or enchanter or magician or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He's like, Nebuchadnezzar, are you able? I'm not able, but my God is able. Your gods are in the heavens. My God's above the heavens. And this God whom I worship is able. He's unmatched. Your gods are not like him. My God is altogether different. The heavens declare his glory. Our God will reign. Our God is different. The fourth thing we learn from Daniel is this about our God, is that our God sets up and removes world powers. Because what Daniel says is like, hey, king, as you laid in bed, you had these dreams, this vision. And God gave me the interpretation, not because of anything in me, but because he needs you to know what he's about to do. In verses 31 through 35, we see Daniel explain this dream. He says, king, in the dream you saw this. You saw a great statue, and the head of this statue is made of gold. The chest and arms of this statue are made of silver. The thighs in the middle section of the statue are made of bronze, and its legs are made of iron, and its feet are made of iron mixed with clay. And then you saw in your dream a stone that was cut out that crashes on this statue. The statue breaks apart and blows off in the wind like the chaff in the summer. King, that's the dream you saw. That's pretty specific. That's detail that only God can give. I can't imagine what was going through Nebuchadnezzar's head at that moment. Like, that jaw is dropping. But now Daniel only gave him half of it. He gave him the dream. And he says, O king, this is the interpretation. He says, king, I'm just going to tell you this for the sake of time. The gold head represents you, the king of Babylon. And you are the great king. You truly are. And after you, there's going to be another king, and that represents the silver, which is lesser than the gold. And essentially, we know through history, that represents the next kingdom, the Persians and the Medes who would come after the Babylonians. And then he says, and the bronze, the thighs and middle section, that's yet another kingdom that's coming. That's even lesser, and that's, we know by history, the Greek empire with Alexander the Great. And still, there's another one that comes whose legs are made of iron and feet of iron and clay, and that would represent the Roman Empire. And the iron and clay would show how the the Roman Empire would be disseminated. Basically, Daniel says, King Nebuchadnezzar, God sets up and removes kingdoms. That's what my God does. And you're great but you will be removed. Babylon is great, but the Persians are coming. 
Persia will be great, but the Greeks will be coming. Greece will be great, but the Romans are coming. Our God sets up and our God tears down. That's why he says in his praise in verse 21 that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kingdoms. Daniel's there in his night watching this vision, this dream, and he's like, oh, snap, God, you are doing this. You set up and you tear down. God is like a person who plays chess. He sets up the board. He moves things around towards his liking. And most chess players are going to be reluctant to move their king, aren't they? They're going to use their pawns, their knights, their bishops, and they'll start using their queen. But you don't mess with the king until you're desperate. You don't mess with the king until it's time to really put that king on the run. And God sets up kingdoms, but eventually he's like, you know what? I'm going to move this king around because these kings are also wicked, and I'm going to remove them. God holds human history like a chess player above, above his board. That's what our God is like. Our God sets up and removes kingdoms. But there's a fifth thing about our God that's the most important thing in chapter 2. And it's this, that our God actually has a kingdom of his own. Because as Daniel explains this dream, this vision to him, and Nebuchadnezzar's hearing and thinking of these kingdoms coming after his own kingdom, there is one aspect of the vision that's yet to be explained. And that's that big rock that was cut down and cut out and destroys this statue. Look at verse 44, what Daniel has to say about this one. And in the days of those kings, that's the Roman ones, the iron, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, amen? Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, this is what he tells the king, a great God, has made known to the king what, the, what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is true. Notice what Daniel says about God's kingdom. It was carved out by no human hand. No human can establish God's kingdom. God establishes his own kingdom. We notice that God's kingdom comes, and it comes with power. It comes with force, and it will be set up for all of eternity. But hear this. After the Roman Empire, what happens? Where does God's kingdom, his kingdom come in all of this? This is the most remarkable thing in this passage. Because we're looking in this text and we look through history saying, well, God, how are you setting up your kingdom? Where, Where is your kingdom at? Because the Romans have come and gone. What's going on here? Well, the way that God has chosen to set up his kingdom is to address the question the sorcerers and the enchanters and the others had in verse, uh, in verse, where am I at? Change my page. Verse 11. Remember what they said to the king when he asked the demand of them. He said, the king, king, this thing's too difficult and no one can show it to the kings except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. I don't know if y'all see where I'm coming right here. But the God of heaven will set up a kingdom because he actually will make his dwelling with flesh. Because we find in John chapter 1 that the word is with God and the word was God. And in John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. The very things their gods wouldn't do, our God would do. And why did our God do it? 
Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came during the time of the Roman Empire to set up his kingdom. And he set up his kingdom by living a perfect life. He set up his kingdom by taking a crown of thorns on a cross and dying the death we deserve to bring us into his kingdom through faith and repentance. He conquered death so his kingdom would not be a temporary kingdom, but an everlasting kingdom. His kingdom is already, but his kingdom is also not yet. Because we read in Revelation that our king who reigns in our hearts will ultimately come back and reign on this earth. And in Revelation 19, John says, I saw the heavens open and behold a white horse. And there was one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. That's what kings do against wickedness. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. And notice this in Revelation 19, verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Daniel's like, that's my God. That's what my God has come to do. The one who hears me when I pray. The one who doesn't change. The one who's unmatched. The one who sets up and removes. And the one who's got a kingdom of his own that's going to go on for all of eternity. That's my God. There is a God, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. There is a God. And, O king, it ain't yours. Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face in verse 46. I just, I just, I picture this man trembling in his shoes, saying, what just happened? You told me my dream that only I knew. You gave an explanation that makes perfect sense. He falls upon his face. He pays homage to Daniel and commanded that offerings and incense be offered to him. In verse 47, watch this. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, and you have been able to reveal this mystery. Church family, when we believe in our God, when we take our God at his word, when we understand he placed us where we're at for a reason, People will see it. They will understand more of our God because of our faithfulness to him. And people will give our God praise because of our representation of him. But this is an important lesson, though, because Nebuchadnezzar is in awe, but we can't be fooled by mere words. In fact, each of the first four chapters of this book, Nebuchadnezzar gives God praise. And each of the four chapters of this book, Nebuchadnezzar tries to put himself above God. And what we understand is this. God doesn't just want affirmations from our mouth, but he wants change of our lives. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. To repent means to turn away from our sin, turn away from our idols, turn away from living for ourselves. But it's also then to turn to our God and to surrender to him in believing in Jesus and his death and resurrection on our behalf. Faith and repentance. That's what Nebuchadnezzar needed in this moment. 
And that's what all of us need as part of our lives, from the moment of our salvation and every day as we walk with Jesus. What I love here is that Nebuchadnezzar's life was filled with confusion. The walls were closing in on him. And ultimately, what he longed for most was an answer from God. And many of you feel similarly that you are longing today. Walls closing in on you, overwhelmed with life. And truly, what your heart's desire longs for is God. And today, I want you to know that there is a God. And he hears you when you pray, as he heard Daniel. There's a God who doesn't change, so the same God of Daniel is your God through faith. You need to know when the walls are closing in that your God is unmatched and will hold you through it. And though life feels crazy, he sets up kingdoms. He'll tear them down. But remember, he's got a kingdom, and it will endure forever. Make Jesus the king of your life. Don't lose heart when life doesn't make sense because there is a God who holds it all together. And let's give him praise, family. Let's pray. God, thank you for showing off your power. God, thank you for um, demonstrating throughout all of history, through all of scripture, that you hear us, that you invite us, that you're accessible, and there's no one like you. My God, I pray that we would surrender our lives entirely to you, that we would trust you, that when life is overwhelming and the walls come closing in, that we would not lose heart, that we would not panic, but that we would uh, look look to you, set our eyes upon you, and not just do so through word, but also do so through faith and repentance. Guide our steps and align us, God, with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Prayer of our hearts that you would be lifted high in our lives. God, we know that we, by our own strength, are not capable to do that. And so we just, we surrender. We say, God, have your way in us. We, we lean on you. We depend on you. God, we're desperate for you, God. But we know when we're walking with you, when we're close to you, God, there is nothing like it in life. So keep us there, God. Keep us close. Keep a short leash on us when we are tempted to go astray, God. Thank you for your love. Thank you that it's steadfast, just like your character. I pray this in Jesus' name. Well, before, if you've got a hand clap, we could do that. Uh, Fill out a connections card. Um, We we continue to ask that you would give generously to the work that God's doing here. And then thirdly, I know today's raining, so I don't know if it stopped, but we always want to encourage you to hang out outside if possible, whether it's on our front lawn or at Bell Park, to still stay connected uh, because we need community. We need community. All right, I want to give you this blessing as we dismiss from Isaiah 12, chapter 2. It says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Let that be your prayer as you go out this week. God bless you, church family. We'll see you all.